Page two, we're studying the book of Malachi, which comes from O. Palmer Robertson's book, Christ of the Prophets. My question to you is, what was historically happening when Malachi was written? Does anyone know, want to take a stab at that? Does anyone know what was happening historically? It's after the exile. Ooh, I like that. Which exile? Both exiles. I've got a little cheat sheet here for you. Let's just jump to the biblical timeline. It seems that anytime I teach the Old Testament, I put this biblical timeline on, and if I'm not mistaken, it actually comes from F.F. Bruce. Basically, you always need to understand who the superpower is when you're reading the Old Testament. If not, you'll be confused. You understand that Israel, of course, was the superpower of the day, 1000 BC. Then the Assyrians came into power. You understand when they were surrounding, and that's where uh, Hezekiah was there as king, and Isaiah was writing his 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 prophecy. Um, Sennacherib was destroyed. You know, he tried to overthrow Jerusalem. It did not work. Then the Babylonians came into power, and that's when they ultimately destroyed the temple. And if you're here in Sunday evenings, we're preaching through Jeremiah, which correlates in the time of the Babylonian exile. You understand the three Hebrew boys, they go into Babylon. The Babylonians were, in super, were the superpower of the day. And then you got the Persian superpower, which is when they sent them back into the land to rebuild that temple that was destroyed. Malachi comes right at the end of that. We call it the time of apostasy because people were just going through the motions. And you're like, weren't they just going through the motions in the book of Judges? Yeah. Weren't they going through the, through the motions just in the wilderness? And Yeah. Weren't they going through the motions in, in Jeremiah time of Judah? Yeah. It seems like God rescues his people. He saves them. And then the next generation just goes through the motions. And the next thing you know, they fall into apostasy. What was historically happening? Well, the temple was finally finished. None of the greater glory prophesied by Haggai had been realized. The royal line of David was not in a position of sovereignty over the land. The high priest certainly was not seated on a throne. Zerubbabel is dead. Joshua the high priest is dead. Sacrifice and the ceremonial law is once again being practiced. And 75 years after the death of Zerubbabel and Joshua, finally comes Malachi. If I could summarize the book of Malachi on the bottom of page two, does anybody know what that picture is of? I'll help you out. It's a, it's a youth camp on the top of a mountain with a cross. Anybody ever go to youth camp? People go like, I can feel so close to God. Well, you be reading your Bible every morning. Every afternoon you meet for Bible study. You worship with the people. Then at night you have another Bible study. Then the next morning you do it again. You do that for five days, you're going to be really close to God if you study your Bible that much and read. The difference is this not real life, is it? Malachi is about people who had this mountaintop experience. They're like, we're back in the land. This is great. Of course, he had to send Haggai in there, tell them to build a temple. You know, didn't go super well like it should have been. But people were on this mountaintop high. Look what God is doing. He sent us back into the land. Then, page three, Real life hits. The game of life. 
Malachi's arranged in three great themes, worship, marriage, and labor. The game of life. You don't live on a mountaintop. You got to go to work the next day. You got to go home. You got to fight your own sin. Malachi is a book about worship, marriage, and labor. The first thing we want to talk about here is this worship mandate. When was the worship mandate given? Do we worship on a different day? If so, why? Someone want to take a stab at that? I'm sure somebody, somebody's going to get this. When was the first worship mandate giving? Why do we worship? Why are we gathered today? Genesis 50? Oh, day seven. That's really good. God worked six days and he rested on the seventh. As we ask little children, does God get tired? No. Why did he rest? He, he rests for us. He is, he's showing us the pattern of life. You work six days, you rest on the seventh. Then, of course, he gave the children of Israel an incomplete six days with the seventh day of rest. That's what I believe. They didn't know what day of the week it was. They were laboring in Egypt, did they not? They were like, I don't know what day of the week it is. They worked seven days a week, 24 days an hour. There was no one that loved the Sabbath more than those people who were enslaved. They absolutely loved it. How did they know what day the Sabbath was? Did they have a calendar? No, God brought them double the amount of food. That's the only way they knew what the Sabbath day was. So they're like, well, the next day is the Sabbath day. God could have chosen any day of the week. I, I think he did Saturday on purpose because he knew that Sunday would come one day. And that's today. We worship on the Lord's day, which is Sunday, because that's the day that Christ rose again from the dead, still following the six days and the seventh pattern. And people go, well, the Jews worship on a different day. I like to say they worship on the wrong day. It was incomplete. It seems like everything in the Old Testament was incomplete and just a shadow of the real. It's my opinion. I think it makes sense. Two, if you grew up in the late 90s and early 2000s, you'll know this song, When the Music Fades, All is Stripped Away, and I Simply Come, Longing Just to Bring. I'm an old youth pastor, sorry. Longing Just to Bring, Something That's of Worth That Will Bless Your Heart. This song's about coming back to the heart of worship. Basically, letting all the other accolades, everything, the, the lights and the show, let's, let's move the lights in the show and let's make it about the song. Yeah, the Presbyterians have been doing that for 500 years. Welcome to the party. But <laughs> let's just make it about the song. And, and, and there's a sense, though, that that's true. God wanted Israel. Now, you may say it was just Judah. I believe that there was a little bit of Israelites that came back into the exile but they had grown cold their worship was cold they were just going through the motions they were just existing does someone want to share a story when your heart had grown cold and what you did to warm the heart is that just me that's been through that situation everyone else is just always on the top mountaintop and on fire I, I, I'm not there Sometimes I read the Psalms just because I need to. It's medicine for my soul. These people were living in apathy, just going through the motions. They needed their hearts warmed. And one way you get your heart warmed is you come to the means of grace. This is a heartwarming opportunity. You'll have that opportunity. 
You'll have an opportunity to sing songs. Those songs do so good for the heart. If you're not singing regularly to the Lord, I encourage you to start singing regularly. It's hard to cry and sing at the same time. This is possible. As we heard through Jeremiah, you can't dance and cry, though. Let me tell you that. Three, the Lord calls Malachi to preach to the hearts of the people because they had fallen to apathy and neglected the worship of Yahweh. Now, when you read through Malachi, it's just four chapters. Fourth chapter is really short. Does anybody read Malachi and go, that's really short? It's just short. I wish there was a reason why. I can't figure it out other than, you know, the chapters weren't there to begin with. So someone stuck four there, I guess. But 47 of the 57 verses in Malachi report a first person addressed to the Lord. And I think O. Palmer Robertson said that, and I agree. And if you read it, you agree. It almost seems as if God is speaking the entire time in the book of Malachi. It's kind of a unique book in that sense that God is speaking. And the people are doubting God's love. Does God really care for us? Does God really care for us? Let's read 6, page 4, very top. Malachi 3.14. And I put this, if you're following in your Bible, I'm reading out of the New International Version, 1984 edition, for those of you who like manuscripts. Malachi 3.14. You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. They've got this attitude, why serve God? Those who don't serve God seem to be winning. Where in 2023 have you seen this attitude displayed? The same Israel, the same attitude that Israel has in the days of Malachi. Where have you seen that? That's a poorly worded question. I apologize. But you get the sentiment. Where have you seen that? Have you seen it? There's It often seems that way, doesn't it? Like, it seems like you're getting the short end of the stick. Social media doesn't help. When's the last time someone put on social media, I'm having a terrible day? It's always like, everything's going great. I didn't fight with my wife in 10 years, right? It's like, look, we're here. It's like, you know, kids, everybody's together in the pumpkin patch. That's not real life, is it? But see, social media puts forth this, this view, and you're looking, you're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. 
And I was reminded that this guy who was younger than me had a really nice truck, like one of the diesel trucks, like a man truck, like a diesel. I was like, damn, wow, a diesel truck. It wasn't even like the 6.0 liters. It was like a real diesel, like 7.3. I was like, man, this is incredible. And he had a big old boat. You know, I got a little tiny boat with a little butter on the back of it. I said, that's nice. And I said, Danielle, how do they afford that? They go, Travis, they don't. Oh, <laughs> she goes, remember, they're in debt. I was like, oh, okay, okay, thank you for reminding me. You know, it's like a start of my heart was like, oh, that's amazing. I wish I had all that stuff. It's like, you could. You'd be poor the rest of your life, but you could if you wanted to. And I think our hearts lean that way, and Israel felt that way. Well, why should we serve God? I mean, the whole rest of the world, the Persian Empire is growing. And they're, they worship pagan gods. Why would we worship God when we don't get what we want? It's just the same old sin repeating itself over and over again. I'm getting the short end of the stick. I don't trust God. God doesn't know what he's doing. This is what they felt. They had more contempt and worship. Look at 7. It's chapter 1. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that wrong? Or is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? God said, bring unblemished animals to me. And here they are bringing the lame animals. Why? They're cheaper. Tip God, right? People just like to tip God. This is what they were doing, just, just tipping God. Even the heart of the priest was bad. Hey, now you priest, this warning is for you. The priests were the ones also allowing this to continue on. They didn't care. God says, bring me a sacrifice. Oh, we better check that box. Let's go find a lame goat. Let's not bring him the best. Let's just bring him something lame. This is how bad their hearts were. But did you notice that they thought they were doing what was right? Just like in Jeremiah, right? They were just going through the motions. Well, I'm in church. God doesn't need you in church. He gives you the opportunity and commands you to worship him. He wants your heart. He doesn't just want you to check a box. Look at nine. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors. This is a big prophecy here because he's speaking about the temple doors being shut, which brings us to discussion question on page five. What will happen to the temple doors and what does this have to do with the current events in today's world? I thought I'd bring that in there just for 30 seconds. Today, 2023, does this temple door being shut have anything to do with what we're seeing today? Any bearing at all?
I, I would take that. That is a good application. That is very Spurgeon-esque of you. I like that. Very Spurgeon-esque. Yes, very, that's how Spurgeon would preach that sermon. But yes, this is correct. We do need to pray that some of the doors get shut. The temple, this is a prophecy directly revealing how the temple doors are going to be shut and will no longer be in existence today. It literally speaking about the temple being shut. Well, this is talking about the actual temple. The one where people brought sacrifices to. It was so deceptive that, that one day the temple would no longer be there anymore. It would be destroyed. God is going to make a whole new plan. And we need to understand that God slammed the door on the temple. It was destroyed, of course, in AD 70, this temple. It was really Herod's temple because Herod made an extension to the actual temple. But he destroyed it. And to this day, did you know? I don't know if you know this or not, if you've been watching the news, there's not a temple. And do you know a lot of your, your people in America are praying for another temple? That's blasphemy. It really is blasphemous. It's not a coincidence that Ishmael's brothers are living on the Temple Mount as we speak. Think about that. Malachi is speaking about this. Malachi is speaking forward of today and what we live in today. But the question is this, which brings up, and Palmer Robertson mentioned this, has God cast his people away? If he's going to shut the temple doors, no. As a matter of fact, Malachi says in 3.16, then those who fear the Lord talk with each other and the Lord listened and heard. Just because the whole nation was living in apathy, doesn't mean there was no true people of God. God has always had his true people. Our nation's not doing well. We're still the best nation in the world. I'm very pro-America. As bad as it is, there are still churches that worship the Lord today in this, in this nation. God has his people all over the nation. I'll be flying to California soon where I used to live in the land of fruits and nuts in Northern California. And guess what? There's solid churches there. There's people that love Jesus. There's reformed churches there. Not many, <laughs> but they're there. There's churches that preach against sexual sin there. Yes, their building gets tagged with pain and bricks thrown through the windows, but there is because God has his churches and people everywhere. And a part of church life was for, he was calling them to worship and the question is, are we going to worship or just go through the motions? Which brings us to be the creation ordinance. So remember, yes, sir. Yes, there was a different form. Substance is the same, but there was a different form, a better mediator, 
Oh, no more sacrifice. Yes, it was, it was shut. It was finalized. And you see that God took his blessing off the land. I agree with you. B, the creation ordinance of marriage. Not only was their worship polluted, but marriage was polluted. Genesis offers a panoramic picture of creational order by setting forth the basic ordinances of Sabbath worship, marriage, and labor. Malachi concludes the final chapter of the Old Covenant narrative by returning to these identical themes. God wanted them, as they lived life, to marry other women who were Christians and women to marry men who were Christians. But this is what Judah had done. Judah had desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. If you understand the cataclysmic issues in Scripture with men marrying women who are not godly, the entire nation split because of the sin of Solomon. It's a big deal. Those of you who have kids and grandkids and nephews, you keep reminding them this. You marry a Christian, first and foremost. Sometimes people go, well, it's not that big of a deal anymore. Oh, it's a huge deal. This is where we get in Malachi 2.16. Look at page 6. You've probably read Malachi 2.16 and you hear God hates divorce. I just want to read this over real quick. The New International Version says, The man who hates and divorces his wife. New Living Translation says, For I hate divorce. ESV says, For the man who does not love his wife and divorces her. The Berean Standard Bible. King James, we'll read that one. That one's good. Lord God of Israel saith, He hateth putting away. Right? For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. And the New King James, New American Standard, I hate divorce. As you see, anytime you read and the translations differ, you have to ask yourself why. They differ because there's a debate on how to read this actual language. I gave you this uh, HTTP link. A man named Dr. Collins wrote this long article on what God hating divorce actually says. Unbiblical divorce is different uh, than biblical divorce. And you say, why are you saying this? Because it comes up in Malachi. It's used often. What these men were doing were they were just divorcing their wife for any reason and whatsoever reason just so they could marry the new hot chick. I'm just going to put it to you like that. Ooh, she's foreign. She looks different. I'm going to divorce my wife, right? Because they were checking a box. It was all about checking the box. I'm going to divorce her, marry somebody else. Right? This is happening all throughout Israel. It was happening in the time of the Mosaic Law. During Deuteronomy 24, it was happening. People would just divorce their wife for any reason and whatsoever reason. They weren't valuing their vows just so they could have someone different. And they thought, well, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm divorcing her like Moses said I could do. And that's not what Moses said. As a matter of fact, look what Jesus says in Matthew 19. Pharisees came to him. This is number three on page seven. Pharisees came to him to test him. Remember, they're testing him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Can we do it? <laughs> for any reason. The Talmud would say, you know, she, she burnt eggs. She's done. 
any reason. And Jesus says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? He did command that. He says, if you're going to divorce your wife, you must give her a certificate of divorce. What was that certificate of divorce? Well, it was saying that she is free to move on and remarry. See, in Deuteronomy 24, this is what's interesting. And you're saying, why are you on this tangent? Because it's brought up in Malachi. So many people misread this. In Deuteronomy 24, the men would divorce their wives for whatever reason they wanted to. They would get remarried. To get remarried, they would get a dowry. They would get some more income. They would have more net worth. And then if they got divorced or they got sent away, then the man would say, once married, always married. You're mine. Give me that money. The, the certificate of divorce was to protect the female. That was as if her husband's was dead. If you want to give her a divorce, that's fine. You can go get remarried. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you make her an adulteress. That's weird language if you read the Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion. It's stuck in the middle of two odd things, too, that are hyperbolic. But what is he saying? He's saying, you just don't control people. She's not property. It protects women. And, and to summarize this, this is what's happening in Malachi. Once again, they're using God's law to their advantage. See, Moses says, yes, you can have a certificate of divorce, which protects the woman, but it's for the hardness of the heart. If someone has hardened their heart so much that they can no longer fulfill their vows, that's what divorce was for. God divorced Judah in Jeremiah 2. God wrote up bill of divorce and says, here, you are now divorced. We are done. God, I believe, if you want to really say this God hates unbiblical divorce but you remember when you get married you can't control your partner's heart you know it takes two to no it only takes one to ruin a marriage it doesn't take two it takes one one person with a hardened heart and you can't control their heart only God can and they can either keep it hard or they can come to the means of grace and come to the elders and beg and get help to get their heart softened takes one person to ruin a marriage. When Malachi is speaking about God hating divorce, he's speaking about a man who just does away with the woman just so he can find someone new. Or a woman nowadays could do that, right? Huh. He's not making enough money. Let me find this other man who's, who's a mogul. That's a big word, isn't it? Mogul. <laughs> right? It happens. And it's applicable even today. And what Malachi is railing against people who are using God's law to their advantage. I've seen this in counseling where men say, no, once married, always married, and they treat their wife poorly. Or a woman can say the same thing. He's not going anywhere. Treat him poorly. That, that's, not, that's not scripture. It's about keeping your heart soft and doing what God has called you to do. This is not what's happening. In the days of Malachi, 
They were just, oh, whatever, the law of God is the law of God. Let's use it to our advantage. That's not how you read the law of God. The law of God was, yes, to show us our sin, but it would ultimately change our hearts. God has always been concerned about our heart, which brings us to see the institution of labor. You've got worship's a part of your life. You need to be going to church. You've got marriage. You've got your family life. Now you have the institution of labor. Because man's original sin, the ground was cursed. Thorns and thistles would be the inevitable crop. You turn to page 8. Not a big Disney fan, but I know the dwarfs always whistled while they work. And, and I always thought, man, how nice would that be just to go to work? Like, like oh, it works great. Everything I touch turns to gold, right? That's, that's not reality. And this is an ethical non-sequitur discussion question. It has nothing to do with Malachi, but do you have to like your job or enjoy your work? I see a lot of people shaking their head. God calls us to work. Six days you need to be working. Six days. On the seventh day you rest. God calls us to work. I think too many people, well, I don't like that job. Well, well, you know how many things I have to do that I don't like? I actually kind of like my job. But there are things that I don't like about my job that I have to do. All of us. It's called life. <laughs> you and Adam and the ground was cursed. Could you imagine? And, and I know there was a big discussion last two weeks ago in our theology night that Pastor David was leading about do you think that the earth actually changed when the curse came? I'm a believer that it did. I believe that Adam worked. But it was, hey, look at this garden, man, it grows easy. Nothing happens, this is easy work. But it was work, and then all of a sudden the curse comes, and it's like waking up at five in the morning, getting dressed, then he has to get his kids ready for school, and then he's going to the office, and his boss is probably like, hey man, you didn't do those reports right. He's like, ugh, right? And it's like everything is just piling down upon him. I know there was no office, but you get the point. Then there was also the curse of Adam with the crops. And just understand, when Malachi speaks about the crops being cursed, that's how they made money. Crops equaled money in the days of Malachi. God says, you're robbing me. Look at page 9. How are we robbing you? 10, verse 10, Malachi 3. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Just as they were given the lame sacrifice, they were given the lame goats, they were also not bringing the full tithe to the storehouse. They were robbing God. Does God still require tithing today? Will the Lord bless you if you rob him? And what do blessings look like and not look like? Does God still require tithing today? I, I, I do want you to understand that this is interesting because... If you read the law, technically, it comes out to like 32% with all the different types of grain and everything they were supposed to do. But prior to the Mosaic law, there was a man named Melchizedek and Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth. Well, I never saw that in the Bible before. 
you did it. The first time you see it is Abraham giving a tenth. So obviously there was already a pattern of giving some tenth to the king of Salem, which is ultimately Jesus. You see it here, bringing a tenth to the storehouse. Will the Lord bless you if you rob him? No. There's this big church in Atlanta, and I forget the pastor's name. It's super broad. I think his name's Johnny Hunt or something. I remember they asked this man who had a church of 20,000 at the time, and they said, how many people out of 20,000 in your church tithe? He said, 100%. And the man said, 100%? He goes, yeah. He goes, how do you get 100% to tithe? He goes, I didn't say they tithe to us. God gets his 10%. Some of them have a lot more doctor bills than usual. and Some of them have tires that need to be changed. And some of them have cars that break down. And that was tongue-in-cheek because I don't understand how God works in this area often. But I know that he says, test me. It's the one time he says, test me. Test me to see if I won't bless you when you give. And you heard my sermon, I think, what was it, maybe seven weeks ago about the widow's might, which is probably my favorite story. It's always a heart issue. This is the reason I can talk about giving is because I don't really care how much you make. I don't care how much you give. The widow gave two minus. She was the greatest giver in the history of the world. I gave her last year with just one offering. More than two pennies, drop a quarter, you outgive her. The amount of money is not the issue. The issue is your heart. And the people in the times of Malachi were keeping everything close. They were just checking a box. God says to give, let me give a dollar. God's like, that's not your heart. Just like you brought the lame goat, just like you brought the, you know, everything that you bring is lame. Even your gift of giving is lame. Just like God's not tired, he's also not poor. He doesn't need money. He owns everything. He gives you an opportunity to worship him. And he gives you a job. And a part of that is bringing your finances to the Lord because you trust him. See, in, in the days of Malachi, the apostasy was so bad that they were robbing him of worship. They were just going to temple, oh, whatever, we'll just go, blah, blah, blah. Just give, you know, th throw a penny here or there. Bring the lame goat. Worship doesn't matter. This was their attitude. It was very, very apathetic. And it was a terrible attitude. And God says, you rob me when you do these things. And the reality is you, you get robbed of the blessing yourself. The amount of blessings you get to give the Lord. And maybe you're in the situation where you just come to worship because you have to this would be a great opportunity for you to ask the Lord to change your heart, to soften your heart, or maybe you're not worshiping him rightly, or maybe you're not even giving. And you know what? It's difficult. I understand it, the economy's terrible right now. Somebody needs to go vote someone in or something to fix this. I don't know what, but it's bad. And it's only going to get worse. But we have a great God. And at the end of the day, he requires us to to, to love him and that's a part of loving him is recognizing that everything we get is from God I got five minutes left to talk about the consummate expectations exhortations and realizations let's go to page 10 
Has anybody ever eaten at Trailer Park before downtown? Trailer Park is a great restaurant. I get no kickbacks from this, just so you know. I don't work for him. No royalties at all come to me, but it's a very neat, interesting restaurant. But what I want you to understand is the second temple was a trailer park compared to the first temple. That's why they were always depressed. When you read through the book of Haggai, especially, which John, I think, taught on Haggai, you see they're like, what does it matter? Where's the glory? Where's the king? King David's supposed to sit on the throne. They knew the Davidic covenant. Where's King David? Where's the Shekinah glory? Do you remember the times of Solomon? They read through this. They understood that the presence of God came. Sometimes the sacrifice would be consumed. The Ark of the Covenant was there where God put his feet on the earth. Nothing in the second temple. No Ark of the Covenant. No Shekinah glory. No literal presence. They were in apathy. They just didn't care. They're like, this means nothing. We're worshiping at the YMCA. Oh, sorry. They didn't say that. But this was their attitude. Right? Verse 4-1. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, there's coming a day. They were supposed to be looking for that day when the Lord is going to meet with them. A glorious day. And God says, yes, there's a reason your temple looks like a trailer park. There's a reason there's no Shekinah glory. He's been weaning them off the literal presence, so now they have to have faith. Have you ever seen Pastor David set apart the elements and then be consumed? <laughs> Magically? No, you haven't. And if it happens, I'm running out that door just so you know. <laughs> They're just normal and ordinary. But you have to have faith or it's just bread, just wine. Those sacrifices that were being made in the second temple, if there was no faith, nothing happened. Nothing. And Malachi 3.1, Malachi 3.1 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Who is the messenger Malachi speaking of? And it's not the Sunday school answer, I'm going to tell you now. John the Baptist. Baptizer, if you want to be technical, right? He was the one that baptized. This prophecy is probably just as crucial as all the prophetic messages of Jesus. The fact that John the Baptist comes and does the very thing that Malachi speaks of, if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, you are a fool. John the Baptist does everything that Malachi said he was going to do. John the Baptist says, I'm that guy. 
You have more witnesses than just Jesus. You have John the Baptist saying, I'm the messenger, I'll prepare the way, then what? Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. How is that temple that's a trailer park going to be better than the first? Because the literal presence of the Son of the living God will walk through those doors. The messenger of the covenant will be there. The one that finally will, will give his life the one prophesied of old, the one spoken about in the, the covenant of grace, the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent will come. I don't have much time, so I'll read the last verse. Look what he will do. If you want to summarize the ministry of Jesus, I will come to put you on a trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers and those who defraud laborers of their wages who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice but do not fear me says the lord almighty that's a good summary of jesus's ministry wasn't it i pray and hope that we will not live like the days of malachi that we'll have soft hearts we'll come to the means of grace and we'll worship god rightly for the king is here let's pray